Welcome to the Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil. And on this episode, you will meet Anthony Sotile. Anthony is currently the technical lead of developer experience at Lyft, building tools and software to make developers productive. In his free time, whatever that is, Anthony spends time bicycling, running, climbing, and baking. When not busy with hobbies, Anthony spends time maintaining open source linting, testing, and productivity tools, and frequently live streams programming content on Twitch. Anthony, welcome to the show. Glad, uh, glad to be here. Yeah, this, this is going to be a lot of fun. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about real quick was um, on one of your tweets, you were talking about being thankful to your parents for getting you into computer security and Linux. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, this is actually kind of a funny story. I, and I only recently told my parents that uh, I kind of broke all of the security that they put on my computer. um so when i was a kid my parents i mean of course wanted me to play outside and so they uh they locked on my computer a bit there was like a a host password and an internet filter uh the internet filter is more to like limit the amount of hours that i was spending online and um (laughs) so the, the the first thing that i did to like kind of break this was i used to like spend probably like 20 minutes a day, just like guessing passwords to try and get into my own computer. Um, And I eventually did guess their password, which goes to show you like, don't use, uh, don't use family pet names as passwords. (laughs) Don't uh, have them be short and guessable. Um, But after that, I installed a secret root account on my computer. And then after that, I was able to export Sam's files, uh, which is the like hash file that Windows uses, uh, <laughs> and then use rainbow tables to uh, crack their passwords in less than one second. <laughs> and uh, this yeah, was like so, the like, ripe the, age the, of what? <clears throat> oh, this was, hmm, I was about 13 or 14 at the time. That's um, awesome. But it was great because like I, I did a bunch of research. Well, <laughs> despite the internet filter, did a bunch of research on like hacking stuff. That was one of the words that it actually like bounced on. So you had to, you had to find websites that had information on this stuff, but didn't have the like keywords that the filter would trip up on. Huh. Um, wow. Well, I realized how to break the filter. <laughs> um, yeah, nice. I, I broke the filter by, uh, I set up a keylogger on my own machine, uh, which usually you associate keyloggers with like spyware and, uh, now, attacking someone else's computer but i was i was attacking myself <laughs> and uh had to i mean the the excuse that i used was that i needed a website a particular school website in order to do some homework and so they temporarily disabled the filter i grabbed the little string out of my keylogger file and didn't have an internet filter after that off to the races nice yeah, and but i uh yeah it was it was really kind of instrumental for me to get into like uh, security and like working with Linux and like it was my first experience with setting up a, a boot CD and uh, or I guess it was a live CD and like uh, playing around with the terminal and all sorts of stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. It's like it it uh, opened the doors for like a lifetime of uh, I don't know awesomeness. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> yeah, that was probably the closest I've ever been to a true hacker. <laughs> Nice. Thanks for sharing that. That's cool. So I wanted to ask you this as well. How would I explain developer tooling to my 97 year old grandmother? 
Ooh. Uh, so the, the thing that we try and aim to do is, uh, so I write tools and software, but everyone else writes software, but sometimes they write software kind of slowly. And I try and write software that makes their software easier to write. Hmm. Uh, and so like the, at least the way that we spin it to our directors and such is that we're a, a multiplying force that makes, uh, makes other developers who are churning out features do it faster. And not just like at work, but also like externally as well. Like the open source tools that I build try and uh, make it easier to work on open source software. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think How that technical makes a... is your grandma? <laughs> yeah. I don't think she, uh, I think she just got a cell phone recently. Uh... Oh, well then it makes the code go more code faster. <laughs> okay. Awesome. <laughs> and, and with what you were kind of talking out there, at what point does a software shop need to consider developer experience and tooling or is there just no boundaries like a one man show or. Yeah, that's kind of a, kind of a hard question for me. Like if I were starting something, I would probably be considering it from the beginning, but that would also probably slow down uh, the, the amount of like features and stuff that I'd be able to build. Uh, I think realistically you probably want to start considering it as soon as you have multiple teams. So probably somewhere around, I don't know, 25 to 30 to 50 developers. Um, Cause at that point you're doing, you're doing a considerable amount of time where you're just interfacing with other developers and need to really have uh, consistent tooling and, and like style guidelines and all those other things that uh, make it easier to switch between code bases or projects or whatever you're, you're working on. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I think even with open source though, like you have projects where there's teams of one or two or three, and even there, uh, it can be super positive to the, the like growth of a project. Uh, it also makes it really easy for contributors external to the project to come in and, and make contributions. If there's good sets of tooling and easy ways to get set up and start hacking on the project. Okay. And this is just my ignorance speaking here, but when it like tooling, are we talking about like command line interfaces that just like help you write less code or is it like project specific? Like there's just some sort of business logic that this thing just helped you navigate that business logic or like what, ex what exactly is. Yeah, it can kind of manifest in a, in a bunch of different ways. If I'm mm -hmm. speaking from an open source project, I think most of it is around like, your first experience, like you clone the repository and then what do I have to do to start being able to change things? And so that might be uh, for Python, like setting up virtual environments or getting the test suite running locally or installing external tools that you might need to interface with, like maybe a database or, um, or memcached or something like that. Um, but the, to, to me, the developer experience is like, what what is the shortest amount of time that I could go from first clone to hacking on something? Okay. Um, and also, like, when I make a change, how confident am I that it's correct and that uh, it has a high chance of being accepted upstream or something like that? Okay. Have <clears throat> you noticed? Thing is like, oh, go ahead. Sorry. The other thing is like automating the nitpicky part. So like. One, one thing that I'm super passionate about is code formatters, code linters, where mm. like uh, you might have somebody who maybe writes code that I wouldn't consider pretty, uh, but ideally 
you would have a tool that just kind of fixes it for them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about, you know, oh, you should have two more spaces there or, oh, you're missing a comma or something like that. And just like uh, reduce the friction to writing code for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed you forked uh, the black project, which is like a, a, a code formatting. It's pretty popular in the Python. It's either that or like, uh, uh, what's the auto, auto pep eight and yeah, you kind of have three choices. You have, okay. you have black, you have auto pep eight or you have yap. Uh, there's a few other like smaller ones. And in fact, I've written a bunch of, uh, auto formatters myself. Um, but yeah, black is actually a really great project. Uh, I, th I think it's, it's idea is really good. Um, I don't agree with all of its formatting choices, but that's the point. You don't have to agree with it. Like, there's one way to do it, and and uh, it does a pretty good job about that. Um, but yeah, I was I actually like spent some time talking with Lukash about the uh, <clears throat> the original implementation of Black and like how to how to spread that through the community. And I don't know. I don't I don't think I was that important in making it happen, but uh, I definitely tried to play a part there and and uh making that project as successful as possible excellent yeah i'm i'm curious where does your passion for tooling and formatting come from i i haven't run across that niche yet yeah so um it actually started mostly out of necessity so i guess we can we can back up in time to my previous job where uh i worked at yelp uh, i started as a javascript developer oddly enough and was writing front-end code um, but then, and, and you'll see this pattern, like I saw a necessity that like, oh, I could be a much more productive front-end engineer if I also did back-end work, hmm. uh, kind of unblock myself. Because uh, as a, as a front-end engineer, you often have to be like, oh, hey, back-end engineer, can you implement this API for me so that I can render the front-end and make it look nice? Uh, hmm. But if you just also become a back-end engineer, you just cut out the middleman there. <laughs> um, so I switched to more like full-stack development, uh, but then like did that for about a year and realized with my, my teammate at the time, uh, that Yelp was not really going to scale from a developer perspective. Hmm. Uh, at the time Yelp was in one very, very large code base and every developer was committing to that. And, like, tr like just trying to manage merge conflicts alone. It was really hard to make that continue to work. Uh, but also like the build was slow and, uh, the web framework was kind of hard for people to to deal with, and it was really hard to onboard new engineers to this like bespoke. Oh, dang it! I said the word bespoke. <laughs> uh, this this special snowflake stack, um, and so we built this team, and and the idea behind the team was to try and make everything less special, but also make it easier for developers to develop on stuff. Uh, and to try and adopt open source technology as much as possible so that when we when we did hire people from industry that had previous Python experience, things would be familiar to them or possibly they would already know how it works. Hmm. Um, and so we built a team, we called it WebCore. Uh, the reason we called it WebCore was our, our excuse to building the team was that we were going to be a web frameworks team. Uh, but then it kind of spun more into a developer productivity team and like building uh, again, like building tools for developers and like mm. developers were our customer and like all of our, all of our goals and metrics were based around like how much code could someone else ship. 
Hmm. Uh, we also did a bunch of work with like building out service infrastructure, microservices, and and separate front ends from the the main code base, such that like you could deploy independently and uh, really accelerate your uh, your output. Hmm. It's so that's sound- kind of how I got into developer. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like um, it's going to like your niche is going to be even more important with the going into the future with more people basically coming into this industry. Like we've got to figure out a way to make them even more productive. Like there's just more people to manage and you're almost in like a people management business. Of course. Yeah, or like and- a fingers business. But <laughs> yeah, and when it's it's especially more and more important as companies get larger and larger. And I, I know, there's there's not quite the the slowing trend of fewer startups, but I, I seem seem to notice more and more very very large software shops that have this this need for uh, like consistent tooling and like uh, yeah developer productivity space. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, so in the pre-interview, uh, I had asked you about AI and you, you kind of freaked me out with, uh, the potential like machine learning application towards, uh, like studying abstract syntax trees. And, and immediately when I read that, I was like, man, that's exactly how a robot would learn how to write code. (laughs) Like, oh no, here's the software code. (laughs) So like, what is the, what is your take on that? Like, are are they going to make... Is, is that a technology that developers should be fearful of or should we welcome it or? I mean, if at the end of the day, uh, to me, like machine learning is just some like fancy if statements that we train and make, make a computer do exactly what we tell it to do. Uh, I don't think we'll ever really have self-replicating code. That's, that's something to actually be fearful of. Um, most of the stuff that, I mean, it's, Computers can barely recognize images and faces <laughs> yeah. and text and like, you know, I put on speech recognition on my phone and I say something and it's, it's never right. You're like, Damn um, <laughs> but like, I, I think there are some, so the, the question that you asked was like, what, what are you interested about in like machine learning and AI and such? And mm-hmm. honestly, my answer is like, that stuff doesn't interest me all that much. Right. Um, but there, there are some, I think there are some cool stuff that, uh, that people are working on in that space. So like there was, there was an announcement recently from GitHub where they're essentially taking syntax and turning it into a queryable database and then uh, tracing control flow in some ways and automatically identifying places where like user generated content could end up inside of a rendered template, for instance, and then you have XSS and such. Hmm. Um, but I think there's some like really cool applications there where like you would essentially build heuristics around uh, how a piece of code could be problematic and then uh, apply some models and, and transforms to real code to identify novel vulnerabilities or things like that. Um, hmm. I'm sure there's applications outside of the security space. Like I've, I'm sure you could use it to do like correctness tests or, or um, hypothesis like testing. Um, but I, I, for me, like the most interesting place would be in like web security and stuff like that. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That was like a, a unique perspective um, with as many shows of, as I've done. I, 
I haven't gone down that rabbit trail yet. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, yes, the self-replicating code. That's what I'm interested in. I want to automate myself out of a job. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I saw that in some like uh, Elon Musk um, interview. He was basically talking about like that will be like the very, like the, the day that there are no more jobs. Like the, the last job is the guy like writing or girl like writing themselves basically out of business. But I don't know if that was a joke or what, but anyway. Yeah. Well, hopefully at that point, there would be like world peace and <laughs> right. uh, surplus of food and like all these things that would uh, yeah. kind of solve those problems for us. But I, yes, think, I, I think that's pretty far off. I look forward to the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. So um, one, one thing I wanted to touch on was with the test-driven development. Like you mm -hmm. probably have like a tattoo on you, something like test <laughs> TDD for life or something. And yeah, you know, I got my tram stamp that says TDD. <laughs> But I, I was curious though, because like you go online, especially for like then then like somebody just trying to get acquainted with how things work. A lot of the tutorials they just don't even go there, and it's it's almost hard to kind of chase down quality like TDD mm -hmm. tutorials that aren't like toy apps. And I was wondering like, do you have anything to add on that subject? Are there any good resources to get familiar with it? Like I kind of want to go into this line of questioning um because this will probably help people like people will take you more seriously if you understand tdd is that over oh, sure yeah yeah i actually this is actually one of the things that i think like you know school and and boot camps and, and college don't really set people up well for success in testing i don't i can't remember a time where anyone actually mentioned the word like oh go write some tests in school other than like print a bunch of stuff and like check your output and make sure it looks right, manually inspect things. Um, I, I definitely think like it was something that being in industry showed me, <laughs> oh, I can actually like validate my code statically and like have some confidence that when I make a change that it'll continue to do the things that I expect it to do. Um, and so I think that part was really important. As for TDD specifically, I actually think it's pretty difficult to learn. And a lot of the toy examples, like, you know, in a way make it a little bit silly. Uh, and I actually think like using TDD 100% of the time, to, I, I don't know if we've defined it, but TDD, test-driven development. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure that using TDD 100% of the time is actually the most useful approach. Um, I find that TDD is really great if you know there's a bug in something and you can easily demonstrate the bug before you're writing code. Uh, and then like you write, you write your test that says, oh, this assertion is failing. And then you do the minimum amount of work to make that assertion pass. Um, and I think that that scenario is where TDD really shines. Uh, but like building new features, it's often not so great, especially if you don't really have the full idea of how a feature should work. Um, I'll give you like a, a stupid, simple example. Uh, I'm actually writing my own text editor right now, um, which no, no one should ever do. And <laughs> I don't, it, it originally started because I was like, I want to learn curses and we'll, we'll see how this goes. And now I'm like four months into the project. I'm like, ah, oh, it's so close to being usable. And I'm just going <laughs> to keep hacking on it until it is. Um, but like, I'll give you an example from that. I was recently working on a feature which allowed scrolling up and down with a specific key combination. Uh, but if you scrolled too far up, you actually scrolled to the bottom of the file. 
hmm. uh, because Python lists wrap around. So if you are at the negative first line, you're actually at the last line. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I, I recognize this bug, and uh, I was actually working on a different feature th at the time. So I <clears throat> I wrote a little test for myself that was like scroll up too high, make sure you don't see the bottom of the file, and it was really easy to like demonstrate that behavior in a test, show that it was broken, and then later I was able to come back to it and, oh yeah, if, if file line becomes negative one, make sure that it's actually zero. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good for, yeah, it's good for bugs, good for regressions, kind of hard for features. And honestly, not all the time when I develop, I don't, I don't always use TDD. Sometimes I'm uh, experimenting with how a feature should work and like, Maybe I'll write some code and then after the fact, uh, describe the behaviors with tests. And it's, it's almost like a reverse TDD where like you build the feature and then you write a bunch of tests that describe how that feature works. Hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of flip flop between the two approaches. Is it just like an experience thing basically where you figure like there's no way to like you just have to spend like 10 years basically messing with this stuff before you know, or is there like a good resource that might help shorten the learning curve or give us more intuition on how to uh, optimize like our use of TDD? Ooh, <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, I wish I had something to link to. I know when I learned, uh, my mentor at the time gave me this like blog post, but it's been, it's been years since I read the blog post. I don't even mm -hmm. know if the blog's still around. Um, but I think like you, you can spend some time where you're purely doing TDD and like it's really useful to like kind of get the feel for how that process actually goes and like I mean, start with a step function, write a test that is your your base case. So like, okay, if it's if it's a multiplication, I don't know, that's a, that's a toy example though. Like say you're implementing multiplication, like you would start with like zero times zero or one times one. And like your first test would be assert zero times zero or yeah, zero times zero is zero. And your first implementation would just be return zero. And then from there you'd be like, oh, well that's obviously wrong. So let me write a test which proves that that implementation is incorrect. And then you, you kind of iterate back and forth until you've built out your full, uh, your full test. Hmm. your full test suite. <clears throat> and I think like that approach and that mindset is pretty useful. Like you're constantly trying to prove the, the implementation wrong. And each time you prove the implementation wrong, you, uh, you've improved your kind of like behavior space that you're trying to prove. Um, and like that mentality is good, but you don't necessarily have to apply the process all the time. And I don't think it's like an experience thing. Like I, I think I was pretty good at TDD, like uh, within a couple of weeks of of doing it for the first time. Um, but maybe the experience thing is like knowing when you need it, or like when you absolutely should apply it, or when it's probably okay to do it after the fact. Or like, mm -hmm. I'm also a big proponent of test coverage. So like I think like you can you can get by without using TDD as long as after the fact you you spend some time doing like branch coverage and like line coverage and making sure you're hitting all of your various cases. Um, one thing that I've actually been super interested in recently, but uh, haven't got enough time to play with it is a concept called mutation testing. Hmm. The idea behind mutation testing is it basically takes expressions of your code. Like say you have a conditional that's joined by an ant 
uh, one mutation might be change every and to an or, or change like each specific and to an or. Uh, and it kind of validates that like, uh, I don't know, if changing an and to an or didn't fail any of your tests, you're probably missing some test coverage and you should probably make sure that condition is still correct. Um, hmm. It's almost like short circuiting. It's like a yeah, test. It's just like some, someone came into your code and was like, how can I screw this up? <laughs> I bet I can change that one to a zero and everything will be fine. Yeah. But yeah, there's this cool library called, I'm probably going to mispronounce it. It's, I think it's MutMut. It might also be Mute Mute. Okay. Um, it's M-U-T, M-U-T. It's a, it's a Python library that does uh, AST-based mutations. And uh, it was pretty cool last time I played with it. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, those are my thoughts on, on TDD and tests <laughs> and uh, kind of the tip of the iceberg there. Nice. Yeah, you, so you do work with uh, PyTest, the library, right? Yep, I'm one of the core maintainers that uh, build the PyTest. Uh, <laughs> but it didn't start out like that. You, you had a, kind of a funny story in the pre-interview where it's like you start like dabbling in the code base and then before you know it, you're like maintaining it. Yeah, and, and a lot of my open source maintenance has kind of started that way where like I've been a long time user of the project. Uh, I think the first time I used PyTest was in like 2014-ish, um, <laughs> quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. um, but like as you use something more and more, you end up finding more and more edge cases and you spend some amount of time reporting bugs and maybe like investigating those bugs and uh, digging more and more into that. And for me, it really started as like, I uh, well, found, found some issues, reported some, some bug reports, also fixed a few issues that were affecting me. Um, I think I even might've written one or two small features for PyTest. Um, but it really just started as like, I'm interested in this project, I use it on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I might as well like give back whatever I can to it. And then the, the maintainers at the time were like, yeah, we, we like your contributions. Uh, here's here's some uh, here's the commit bit. Like, thanks thanks for what you're doing, and hopefully you continue doing it in the future. Hmm. Uh, and then from there, like once I had the commit bit, I was I was addicted. I want to fix as much as I can. Spend spend enough time on this to make it worth it. And like, uh, nice. And that was really great. And the the cool thing is like Lyft uses PyTest, uh, Yelp used PyTest. Uh, it was it was beneficial for me to do these contributions because it directly affected like both my work, but all of my peers work at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's pretty cool to have uh, that kind of impact. I, I can't actually fathom it. I, I haven't experienced something like that, but that's, that's it's, a cool story. It's actually sure. not that hard. Like okay. becoming a maintainer of a project is, is, I don't know, probably not that much work. Like just, Honestly, you can just start by triaging issues and like getting involved in pull requests and reviewing code and starting to understand how the code base works, building small things. And I don't know, it's, it actually wasn't that hard to get involved. And hmm. um, maybe, I, don't know, I, I say I'm a core developer of PyTest, but I, I think I don't actually do all that much work. Most of my stuff that I do is like bug fixes and triaging issues and uh, not necessarily writing a lot of code there. I think I'm almost net negative on, on my, my actual <laughs> contributions, but um, I don't know. I, I think like a lot of it is understanding the core and like deriving the, the direction of 
of how the project wants to evolve and like what sort of things we want to support and like helping people with their <laughs> usually very, very strange bug reports. Like, oh, I did this weird thing in Python SegFault and it's like, uh, <laughs> I don't know how PyTest is involved there, but I'll help you debug it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you get really interesting, but like, Every once in a while, I'll get one of those bugs where it's just like so interesting that I'll I'll, I'll stay up until like three in the morning. Like, <laughs> I gotta find why this weird thing is happening. But, um, but yeah, that's I, I think that's that kind of sums up my uh, my contributions there. Cool. Yeah, I was curious how has um, contributing to open source like w- how has that served you? I guess. Um, I think it's been pretty good from like a especially from like a recruiting standpoint, like I think my resume was much stronger because I could point at things that weren't just behind this firewall of who knows what corporate stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could point to like, Oh yeah, I, I maintain this, this library. I know how it works. I'm, I'm involved in the project management and all that other stuff. And um, Oh, you use this library too? Cool. Well, I maintain it. <laughs> Just so happens. Uh... <laughs> um, so I think that part's been pretty useful. But I also think, like, from a from a professional development standpoint, like, getting involved with open source showed me how much better I can be at a communicator. Like, mm. like you have <sighs> with open source, like, you can have good bug reports, which are like exact reproduction uh, reproduction steps with information about versions and the operating system, like all, all the like nine yards, like expected input or expect output and actual output. Um, and then you can have bug reports that are just, I did this thing, it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? <laughs> Fix it now. And like being able to recognize, because like I did it too, like I'm, <laughs> I'm no better than anyone else. Like I had really, really bad bug reports at, at some point in time. Um, but recognizing like how I'm communicating with others and like demonstrating, like being able to demonstrate a problem and work through it and, um, and communicate that to other people. So I think, I think that was really important. Okay. Uh, but also realizing and like (laughs) realizing that there's other people on, on the other side of these open source projects and they're humans just like everyone else. And they, might have a little bit more free time to spend on these things or like uh, have, have a passion for I don't know, donating their time to, to others. Um, yeah. I, I think, I think that's what I've gotten the most out of open source, but also mm-hmm. like, <laughs> as soon as you work on a project, you start to realize that integrating one project with another, you have just like this, this fractal of edges and, I think that's where a lot of the interesting parts of open source happen, uh, where you, you deal with the interactions of one or two or five or, or six different tools and um, figuring out the ways to make all of those things work nicely together. Um, I, like one example is the, uh, the GitHook's linter formatter framework that I created called Precommit. Uh, it originally started as like a, Git hooks manager, but then kind of expanded outwards to like a multi-language install tool and a bunch of other stuff. Um, hmm. But working on that has kind of exposed me to all sorts of different technologies. Like I think I've reported like five or six bugs in Git. I made a contribution to grep as a side effect of working on this project, hmm. uh, dealing with like 
cross-platform issues because it supports Windows and macOS and Linux and weird other combinations of, of uh, systems and hmm. just realizing all the all the all the things that people don't think about and um, how really broken most software is. <laughs> Um, what what is a uh, pre-commit because i've seen that on uh like some of your other uh mm-hmm. tweets is it a way to kind of look at changes before they're actually i mean that's what comes to mind when i hear it yeah so the it's named after it's it's named poorly <laughs> we'll start with that okay uh, it's named after the git hook that has the same name because i was the the original goal was just for that one git hook uh but the idea behind it is you have this small declarative metadata file, which includes uh, basically a list of linters and versions that you want, or linters, code formatters, or whatever else you want. Uh, and it will manage installing those for you and running them on the relevant files in your repository. Uh, the idea is like you run git commit, and it makes sure that your code is good before the commit is, is committed. Uh, you can also set it up as like pre-push or validate your commit messages or do a bunch of other other stuff with it, and it's expanded out to other Git hooks since then. Hmm. Uh, but the like the the core problem that it tries to solve is that like most companies build something like this, but it's usually like a thousand or two thousand line bash script that everyone just kind of cargo cults into all of their repositories, and then. You have sysadmins installing linters globally on development machines and then like bumping those versions is hard because like you bump a version and suddenly you've broken linting in every single one of your repositories. Or, like, uh, you might hmm. have a team that wants to work on or might have different uh, conventions for how they want to write code. And so like they're going to take that 2000 line bash script and change two or three lines of it. And then suddenly you have a, complete copy paste fest of this, uh, <laughs> this, <laughs> this giant terrible script. Um, hmm. And pre-commit tries to take all of those things into consideration and make it really easy for each individual repository to have its own set of things and like, uh, make it really easy to update them and update them in a single repository or uh, spread that across all your repositories and uh, kind of version your version your linters and version your, your code formatters. Hmm. Um, but it also supports a def- bunch of different programming languages. It happens to be written in Python, but maybe your linter is written in Ruby, for example, like uh, the most popular, and probably not anymore, but uh, at the time, the most popular SCSS linter was written in Ruby because like, SAS was written in Ruby. Hmm. Um, and so pre-commit knows how to set up a Ruby environment, even if you don't have Ruby installed on your machine. Uh, it knows how to basically install Ruby and give you a, a workable linter installation. And it does all this in user space. So it's, it's easily, it's more easily compatible with those angry sysadmins that are like, no, we're not installing Ruby <laughs> over my dead body. Um, <laughs> which <laughs> been there before. So hmm. That, that might uh, actually kind of feed into this next question that I had for you. I was wondering if there's any trends you're seeing and how developer tooling and developer experience is evolving. And it sounds like maybe what you just said kind of, is that part of, part of what you're seeing? Yeah, I think, so some of the trends that I've seen in recent years that I think are really important and uh, kind of have helped this 
grow a bit uh, is, is kind of two things. One is discoverability, uh, especially as companies are moving more and more towards microservices and, and like hundreds or thousands of individual repositories, uh, figuring out where code come from, comes from and like how mm. APIs link together and like, oh, I have this error message that I got, but I have no, no clue which service it came from or like which, uh, which repository that lives in. Hmm. Um, so I think like one piece of developer tooling that's really been expanding a lot recently is uh, kind of code search tools. And it sounds like such a simple concept, but it's, it's really, I mean, company, there's, there's a whole startup around this called Sourcegraph and they just, they built a solution where you basically pay them to index your code and provide a not crappy search engine over it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> hmm. some, some for some reason, searching code is pretty hard. Um, wow. And like, I think this discoverability has really been a, I mean, it shouldn't have been an emerging technology. It's the most basic idea I could think of, uh, but it's, it's been kind of new for me. And I think it's really helping companies kind of get off the ground when they start getting to the point where not everything is in this thousand lines of code. Like suddenly you have thousand repositories and, and dealing with mm. that is kind of hard. Yeah. Wow. But the, and, and the second part is uh, I like to call it distributed refactoring. Um, I, I don't think I came up with that term, but I use yeah, it a lot. I was wondering, I saw that in the pre-interview. I was like, I just, I couldn't even Google the term. I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe Please. I made it up then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, the, the idea is that like, um, and, and this again, like ties into uh micro microservices or micro repos okay uh you might have uh, it also ties into security as well uh, but you might have like i don't know 100 repositories and you want to make the same change to 100 different repositories and uh hmm. building tooling and, and those 100 repositories might be slightly different from each other so you might need to adjust logic for some of them or uh make some like heuristic based choices on how you want to do those things. Uh, hmm. but, but it's, uh, I think it's just kind of starting out as a, a new technology and like people are kind of building this out. And I expect like a startup to start doing this is, is yeah. what I'm trying to say, um, where they basically provide as a service, some set of tooling that you just say, Oh, I want to apply this refactor, um, make it happen on my repositories, make sure the tests pass before that merges and just, Go. Do However thing. you do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like every company kind of builds something like this. Uh, hmm. Like Lyft has this, this tool called Refactorator, which basically just clones repositories and applies a, a set of changes to them and then pushes a PR for that. Hmm. Um, and I think like everyone essentially builds this. Uh, in fact, I wrote my own open source version of this. Uh, it's a repository called All Repos. The idea is that, like, it kind of ties into both these. It's both a discoverability tool and an automated refactoring tool, where like you just you hook up this little config file, it clones all of your repositories, and then you can do whatever you want with them. Hmm. Um, and like we, the, the original version of it was this really crappy Bash script that I wrote at Yelp, and <laughs> it. Uh, it definitely helps uh, their productivity there because they were able to uh, they were able to apply sweeping changes with this this tool set. Hmm. 
Um, but yeah, I, th I think those two things, at least in developer productivity, are probably going to be the the biggest up and coming things that'll change in this space. Uh, things around like uh, discoverability and automated refactoring. <clears throat> hmm. Oh, I forgot to touch on the security aspect of the automated refactoring. Um, refactoring. Dang it. <laughs> 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 it might be it might be uh you know like an like it it might exist in the dictionary soon yeah. what it sounds like <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the problem is like you have like the muscle memory when you type something out and this is like muscle memory of the mouth where i say refactorator <laughs> all day and suddenly i'm saying refactoratoring and uh i love it but yeah i think like the the security aspect is also pretty important there like we're starting to get to the point where uh uh, machines are kind of able to understand the dependency graphs of your repository sort of automatically. Uh, there was a product that GitHub acquired called Dependabot, which basically just scraped repositories and looked at either like requirements.txt or package.json or whatever other formats that it supported. Uh, doesn't support all of them, which I want to fix that at some point. <laughs> GitHub, if you're listening, I'll, I'll fix it for you. Um, but I, I think it's getting to the point where like, it's pretty good at recognizing the dependency patterns and also getting uh, kind of getting to the point where it can automatically upgrade those when it sees you know security vulnerabilities or like it knows this package has a particular bug um, and I think we'll eventually get to the point where like we have these machines that recognize these vulnerabilities and they just go around all your repositories and Oh, hmm. well, I, I fixed this bug for you. Oh, I also rewrote all the function calls because the API changed or like all this other stuff. Hmm. I think like, I think that'll be really important and really powerful. I'm hoping it happens is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like the kind of like the PyCharm functionality, but like on steroids. Yeah, It's kind of what, sure. what it sounds like. Yeah, and I, I think like, well, one one way that we've leveraged kind of these distributed refactoring tools at Lyft is like, um, <laughs> well, like 12 months ago, we didn't have basic syntax checks in all of our Python repositories. Like some of them had it because people either were like uh, invested in linters or like thought that was a valuable thing for their team's repositories to do, but not all of them had it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I built a, I wrote a little script that was like, oh, check if this repository has linting. If it doesn't, add some basic checks and then um, like in, in as like one developer i was able to improve the code quality of hundreds of repositories with basically just a you know, 50 line script that did it automatically man um, and like that's a big win that's really cool yeah it was it was and it wasn't all that much work it was just like fixing some lint errors and a bunch of repositories Hmm. Uh, but also at the same time, like adding linters, I could also add code formatters so that like you know, when, when the lint failed, I could just have a formatter come by and be like, oh, I know how to fix that. Cool. Now you don't have trailing white space anymore. Now you don't have uh, this misindented or whatever. Um, but I was able to just like, leverage this distributed refactoring tool to just do that for me. Hmm. Yeah. And just a little plug for black, it will actually... No, it'll not only tell you what it is, but it'll fix it, right? Like that's yep. the whole sales pitch. Yep. Yeah. Black is uh, black will format every single line of your file, <laughs> um, which which you may or may not want. Yeah. But yeah, I've written a number of code formatters myself. Like uh, 
couple of years before Black existed, I had a similar idea around, um, so like Black does this very specific uh, style for function calls where it ensures that there's trailing commas and like make sure to reflow the arguments so that they they look nicely. They're always one indent more than the function call and like you have this, you have this very specific structure. Um, and I wrote a tool, uh, I'm not very good at naming if, if, you've, if you've realized so far. Uh, the tool is called add trailing comma and nice. uh, it, it, it adds some commas sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually kind of funny recently that I added a patch which actually removes some commas in some cases. So it's huh. not quite to its name, but uh, the idea was very similar to black in that like every function call should have this very specific structure and like uh, I should be able to like format two code bases and then switching between them, it should be much easier to understand like control flow and like what the, how to write a function call basically. Hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've, I've kind of been dabbling in this space for a while and like building tools like this really excites me because <laughs> I, I can just apply this code formatter to co my code base and then uh, when I'm doing code review, I don't have to worry about like, oh, you should have a comma here or whatever. Like I can actually focus on architectural changes and as a result, you end up building higher quality software. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, I had that uh, a question to kind of touch on that. Uh, like when did you realize that humans hate being told to do something but will <laughs> happily answer to a linter? And and the uh, second the second part of that is, is it just that we can't, we just can't handle the feedback or what, like what's going on here? Ooh, yeah, that one's a pretty loaded question. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, th I think it was somewhere around when I started building more developer focused tooling when I was at Yelp. And like up until that point, I was pretty involved in code reviews. Like I, I think I was like number one in the company and like number of PRs done uh, and reviewed. And um, I realized like I was spending a lot of emotion, both emotional investment and time investment on like things that in the grand scheme of things really don't matter. Mm. Uh, like telling people to format their code in a particular way or sort their imports in a particular way. Like it's, it's pretty tiring. <laughs> it's a lot yeah. of work. And, um, I especially think that like when when you spend an amount of time doing that in code reviews, the receiver of that feedback doesn't necessarily take that nicely. Hmm. Um, and especially like if you're, you know, you post you post a 200 line diff and like you get back 20 comments and two of them are, oh well maybe if you restructured this like you would have a uh, performance benefit or uh, here's a bug on your code here. Like those are actually useful comments, but if if they're inundated with eighteen comments of oh well your imports are in the wrong order <laughs> and your your comma is in the wrong place, um, I, I like <laughs> I'm pretty sure anyone even somewhat sane would be like well you just told me to to pound sand and like you know now I'm gonna have a bad attitude about this code review and like even though mm. you've pointed out valuable things in parts of this review, you've also spent a bunch of time on the needless nitpicks. Yeah. Um, and I, I think like the, the hard part is there is like code reviews, they shouldn't be personal, but they're, they're pretty personal. Like um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're ta- you're like that's somebody's work product. Of like, course, yeah, and like you're putting it out there to be like, uh, does this look right? And you're <laughs> you're getting back these comments that are like, maybe it's right, but your white space sucks. <laughs> it's not, not necessarily productive there. Yeah. Wow. That's like, I, I've never, I've never worked in an environment quite like that, but I could see how that would erode like the camaraderie pretty quick. And oh, for sure. And like the, the other part is like, if you're giving those, that feedback in a, in a code review, uh, say like it's a junior developer writing code and maybe you're in a position of seniority. If they see a senior developer, making these kind of nitpick comments on code review often they'll develop and like i i saw this in myself when i was a junior developer like oh senior developers telling me to sort my imports that must be what code review is about is like uh questions of style and and working on that sort of thing Hmm. developing those preconceived notions about how you should review someone's code is is pretty bad actually yeah you you waste a lot of time kind of talking about these things that that really don't matter Hmm. Um, but then i had i had this great realization that like oh if i can automatically do all these things like i I think the first realization for me was like if i can write a tool that does all the things that i tell people to do in code review like i don't have to tell people to do that in code review anymore yeah Uh, i think initially it was purely selfish and that like i can save my ass a bunch of time and just like <laughs> have a yeah. do this for me. Um, but you're adding an incredible amount of value. Like I can only imagine your the company was not the only company dealing with that. I mean, oh for sure. I'm pretty like sure everyone productivity. Yeah. Across like the globe, man. Like that's I don't know. I, I don't know if you're like an original like thought person in this area, but that's like pretty serious consequences to yeah, I, I'm, like, I'm I feel not, like you're I'm not really original there. here, but I, I have built a lot of the Python tooling that, that does okay. those sorts of things. Um, and like, I, I think like the first one that we introduced at Yelp that was just kind of a game changer for us was like something as basic as sorting imports. Like, cool. We, we no longer have to have discussions about the top <laughs> of your file. You don't right. care what it looks like anymore. A tool is making sure that everyone's looks exactly the same. And if you don't like the style, just, keep it to yourself. The tool is going to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, and like just, just that first formatter was like, I mean, it's pretty hard to measure these sorts of things and like how much impact it has, but hmm. if you just like um, take a, take an average code review before it happened, count how many things were, Oh, well, you're, you should put IO before uh, URL lib or whatever. Yeah. Um, and like, not having those comments afterwards and like actually focusing on the core of the code instead of these useless style things. Imagine that. (laughs) (laughs) Weird, right? Code review that actually looks at code. (laughs) Oh, that's no, that's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, We are coming up on the hour here. I did have a couple other questions. Um, How, how are we doing with your time? I've got, I've got nothing to do, nowhere to go. So I'm happy to answer as, as many questions as you have. Okay. Yeah. I I just wanted to lever or lever your expertise kind of in this area and then, uh, hit on your, uh, your Twitch project a little bit too. So, uh, yeah. Uh, what was your main driver for, to make uh, free software and free content? Hmm. Man, I don't even know. (laughs) I I mean, you're prolific though with both of those things. I think part of it, at least from the free software perspective, was that I realized how much 
like how valuable it is to me that someone else is providing free software and in a, in a way I kind of wanted to give back in that space. Okay. Um, but also there was just like my, my first pull request that I ever made, there was just something like so exciting about uh, like adding this. It was probably like a, a little tiny change. I could probably look it up at some point, but it was, it was probably just like some little change to some library that no one really cared about my change or whatever, but like, the adrenaline of like pushing that and someone being like, yeah, this is good. Now everyone who uses this software is going to run your line of code forever. Um, something about that was just like so exciting to me. And yeah. I, don't know, I think I just kind of got addicted to that, uh, <laughs> that sort of approach. Yeah. Um, but also like, as I touched on before, like it made me a better developer. And mm. I think I recognize that as well. As for free content, um, I guess we can probably talk a little bit about Twitch and a little bit about YouTube. Most of my YouTube con is, is kind of <laughs> not so good, or it's just uh, reposts my Twitch streams, which is fine. Uh, but I originally started streaming on Twitch because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to have a structured time where I would just sit down for a block of time and work on projects. Uh, most of the time being personal projects, some of them being open source projects that I contribute to, but just like, have a, a well-defined block of time where I kind of force myself to focus on this and and build something. Mm -hmm. I say focus, but yeah, <laughs> with like, chat, you're, ta that's, that's like you're typing and then you're chatting. I'm like, how is this guy doing that? <laughs> it's crazy though, because like you're doing stuff. So yeah, that's what I was kind of curious. I was like, you Man. kind of have to have like two trains of thought at the same time. <laughs> it's like, all right, we're dealing with the trolls over here and we're writing code. Over here. Like, <laughs> yeah, keeping all of that together. Um, but yeah, it, it quickly it quickly changed from uh, streaming being about like me and my projects and more about like how I can engage a community and like deal. <laughs> I don't want to say deal with chat, but also like <laughs> uh, like answer other people's questions, get people excited about programming, and just being like, "Look, I'm a real person too. Mm -hmm. I may type fast and use a weird text editor, but like <laughs> it's it's mostly it's mostly just like." me packing on things that I find interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, so, uh, we'll, we'll just hit on it real quick. I know we were talking about this before the interview, but so nano, like how, for those of you, like nano is, um, like you will run across nano if you get involved with Linux at all. It's one of the, like it's literally the worst text. <laughs> it's the notepad so, of Linux. Some, somehow you make it work though. You've got like tabs and then you've got like, two of the command line, like what's, what's going on with that? Is it just uh, like the crowd wants it? So you provide that to um, the crowd or? So, I mean, I do actually use Nano as my primary text editor as bad okay. as it is. Uh, and it, it really started. So I don't know, like my, my first ever text editor, I, I run windows and originally ran windows. And like my first text editor was notepad. And okay. Notepad's awful. Uh, I eventually got to Notepad++ and realized like, oh, there's there's nice features and nice keyboard shortcuts and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I worked at a Java shop uh, where we used Eclipse, and Eclipse is uh, it's it's a thing. It works <laughs> works pretty well, but uh, it works pretty well for Java as well. <clears throat> this was before like IntelliJ even existed. Okay. Uh, then I worked at a .NET shop. Actually, it was the same shop, but they decided to switch from Java to .NET. And Visual Studio, my God, it's amazing. Yeah. You just press command or control space and it just writes your code for you. <laughs> um, 
I really liked working in Visual Studio and I actually really liked C Sharp. I wish I had more of a chance to to write modern day C Sharp. I think it was like .NET 3 at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but I really liked Visual Studio and I really liked having an IDE. And I, I think like IDEs are super powerful and like if you can get them to not be slow and like not slow you down and like actually accelerate your work, they're super, they're super great. Um, and then after that, I worked at Yelp where it was Python. And so Visual Studio doesn't really help you all that much. Uh, at the time, this was before Visual Studio Code, in fact. Yeah. Um, and I actually switched back to Eclipse to do Python development, uh, which worked pretty well. Uh, the, the biggest problem, and, and it worked pretty well because at the time Yelp was a single code base. And so like, I only had one Eclipse project. I would have the same project open the whole day. I could use my fuzzy files, finding, searching, whatever, to open the files I needed. I could do some amount of like tracing code from one function to another with like jump to definition and those sorts of sorts of things that you come to expect from an ID. Uh, then I switched to IntelliJ because it came out and had Python support and was way less clunky than Eclipse. Um, and IntelliJ worked great for me. Um, <laughs> until I went to work from home for a few weeks over the holidays. And uh, Yelp Main was like I don't know, somewhere around 3 million lines of Python at the time. And synchronizing 3 million lines of Python across the country over SSHFS just like did not scale at all. And so I, I reverted back to my terminal, em uh, uh, terminal emulator, no, uh, terminal editor that I had learned in college. Um, you know, you learn how to quit Vim and Nano is easier. So yeah, I just, I just used Nano. Um, and I thought it was going to be a temporary thing. Like, oh, I'm just I'm away from work for a couple of weeks. So I'll, I'll just I'll use Nano while I'm here. Um, and this was right when Yelp was starting to move to microservices and uh, library repositories. And uh, I think there were probably like a couple hundred repositories at the time instead of just one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> one repository to rule them all. So, um, but I realized that like having an ID was, was slowing me down quite a bit because I was spending a lot of time context switching between many different projects. As you're developing on libraries, you need to deal with like both the library but all the downstream services that are utilizing that. Um, and maybe another library that's using that library. I mean, I, you, you kind of have like this, this fractal of dependencies. Mm -hmm. And even with service development, like you have one individual service and that might touch a bunch of different services. And so you have to, you have to deal, deal with both ends of the pipe. Uh, but I realized as I was using Nano, or it was more like as I was using a terminal editor that uh, switching between projects was, was uh, taking up a lot of my time that I wasn't really realizing. Opening and closing different IntelliJ workspaces was actually pretty slow. And like, hmm. uh, I didn't have didn't have enough RAM at the time to run four of them at once, for instance. Yeah, wild. Um, it, was, it was a giant Java process and just gobble up all the RAM. Um, hmm. But then, like, kind of developed some muscle memory, and then when I came back from my holiday break, I was just stuck with it, and uh, have gotten <laughs> I've gotten better at it since then. Um, I do actually know how to use better text editors. So I, I do know how to use Vim. Um, but at this point, like I'm, I'm faster at Nano than I would be at Vim, and it would probably take me like a couple of months to get up to speed in Vim. Uh, but why change? Like it works for me. Yeah. 
like what, what am i gonna do it's it's uh, like a signature too like yeah like yeah. if you're oh, he's he's the guy that uses nano look at that weirdo <laughs> uh, oh. yeah my my setup is super low tech like i just like have two terminal windows with tabs open and i use the mouse to click between two of them occasionally i'll use alt tab or control tab but uh for the most part it's it's just super basic and uh it works for me and I don't know. I'm not recommending my setup in any way, shape, or form because it's it's probably unproductive. But well, I mean, on the other end of the spectrum, it's like you're completely relying on linters and formatters, and I kind of wonder if there's some sort of consequence to doing that, or is it just yeah? Um, I I think like if I was doing in in an IDE instead, like I would end up with the same a similar linter and formatter situation, except like the IDE would probably help me out a little bit more than my text editor probably does. Um, that said, like even even lowly nano has some rudimentary uh, linter and formatter functions. So like hmm. you can you can hook up a code formatter. Well, not in the latest version because they've removed that feature. But in hmm. the version that I'm running right now, you can hook up a code formatter to a key uh, key combo and it'll format your file for you. Um, but like. I think I think having an ID and having that built in is a lot more valuable and like being able to press command space and like or control space or whatever whatever key combination it is. Mm. I keep saying command space. I don't actually run a Mac. <laughs> like what why would I say command space? It's probably because I have to say it to other developers all the time. Uh, yeah. But like I think IDs are super valuable and if you can make them work for your workflow and have them accelerate your your development, like by all means use them. Um, mm -hmm. and like a, a terminal ed editor should really be your last resort. <laughs> I just, I just, or if you're dealing, stuck in a rut. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're dealing with, uh, you know, millions of lines of code, like that's kind of amazing how it can just handle it. Yeah. Or you can get like, I don't know, 64 gigs of RAM and then maybe you could open <laughs> <laughs> those million lines of code, but sure uh, that's not necessarily accessible for everyone. Yeah. So, so hopefully uh, in your, if you're in a situation where you're dealing with million line code bases, your company can afford to give you a few gigs. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't fathom. Uh, I can't fathom that actually. It sounds like a, quite a task. Absolutely. Yeah. And then like applying linting and formatting to this million lines of code, like, Oh, this diff does plus 300,000 minus 200,000. Oh, like, uh... How do you, <laughs> hopefully it works. Uh, hopefully the tests are working. Yeah. Although we would usually split up those changes so they weren't mm. so impactful. Although, turns out when you do sweeping changes, uh, if you split them up, you actually cause people more merge conflicts than if you do it in one go. Uh, hmm. Which, after you think about it, it makes sense. But up front, it's like, oh, you want to split up the change so that you, you don't do that. We, we, we definitely found that... <laughs> Hmm. Refactoring, oh, there we. I did, I did it again. I said refactoring. <laughs> uh, re refactoring all at once is actually faster and, and more yeah. productive for developers than doing it in piecemeal. Hmm. So if you're going to well, tabs to spaces or spaces to tabs, do it all in one commit to save everyone the trouble. There, you're have yep. like one week of sadness, but after that, everything will be better. <laughs> yeah, that's that's perfect. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And I noticed on your GitHub. Um, a lot of your projects are gravitating towards Python. Is that just like, are you in love with Python or that's just like the, like that's how you make your money. So that's what you do your code base in or what's up with that? Yeah. It's mostly my current poison of choice. I recognize that like 
Python's not necessarily the, the greatest language. And like, it's starting to shore up better around like tools like MyPy for type checking and like, you know, Black for code formatting and like all these, these other sorts of tools are, are starting to make it mm -hmm. a much more bearable situation. But I don't know, if you look at Python, like it's pretty slow. It's, you know, your typical dynamic language uh, interpreted and like all, all those, all those sorts of problems that you get along with those things. And like, I really wish I could work more in compiled languages. And, like, I've spent, some, I've spent a lot of time writing C++, but none of my public repositories really reflect that. Um, mm. I spent a bunch of time writing Java, a bunch of time writing C sharp. And like, I really, really loved those experiences because a compiler is helping me out all the time instead of like, Oh, a runtime error. Oh, I typoed the name of an attribute, or oh, the key wasn't in that dictionary. It's like the the compiler can tell me before I even run the code that it's a problem. Hmm. Um, I I wish I could spend more time in in other languages. Uh, it just happens to be that like Yelp uses Python, Lyft uses Python, uh, so it uh, kind of makes sense for me to to work in that tool space. Mm -hmm. Have you messed around with Dart at all? I did the hello world when Dart originally came out and it compiled to like 3,000 lines of JavaScript. I hear it's gotten better <laughs> like, since what? then. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was wild. Um, and actually I worked, uh, when, I was in, when I was an intern, I actually worked with somebody who had, at the time, written the largest Dart program in existence. Hmm. And it was like 3,000 lines of Dart. <laughs> it, was, it was not very much. Um, but I, I hear good things about what's happened since then, because that was in like 2012 when it was barely a language. Um, hmm. But I haven't, I haven't played with it since then. I hear they're doing some really good stuff with like uh, compiling to WASM and like having both like static type, kind of a good balance between static typing and uh, sort of a dynamic-ish language. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I haven't, I haven't written any Dart since then. <laughs> yeah. There they're kind of the crazy concept from what I understand right now is they're trying to make it so one code base can actually like rule all the platforms. I mean, I don't know. It sounds pretty wild. Like, are yeah, we going to be making to a desktop application, a command yeah, line tool, websites. run it in your browser? Like, yeah. I mean, they're kind of trying to do that with JavaScript too, but yeah. I think Dart has a better, has a better language to make that happen. I don't know if I want to deal with JavaScript semantics for another 10 years. <laughs> yeah. I, I never, I never really got into it too much myself. So I, I, I can't really add a lot of value there, but hmm. it's, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's certainly a lot of JavaScript out there. Um, yeah. And I know like the, so one of the things I maintain is the libsass bindings for Python and libsass is a C++ implementation of SAS, uh, but they've actually stopped doing development on the Ruby version. And now the, the canonical implementation is in Dart. So like there's, there's a, a large important piece of infrastructure that uh, will, will probably, uh, well, it's, it's already implemented all of the Ruby implementation and it's already faster and more feature complete. And like, um, hmm. it's, it seems promising there. So I'm looking forward to maybe writing more Dart in the future. I'm also really interested in Rust. Uh, okay. I think Rust, like the the promise of a memory safe low level language, just seems too good to be true. But hmm. at the same time, like Rust Rust programs compile, so it might be a thing. Hmm. Um, but I haven't. 
my infinite free time. Yeah, I haven't had enough time, time to uh, look into those. Mm. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing your insight on that. I wanted to talk about uh, your kind of the little nugget that you dropped in the pre-interview about how you found that switching jobs allows for more happiness, learning and opportunity. I didn't know if there was, hmm. can you put some color on that? Cause yeah, I but, think like, oh, oh sorry. Go ahead. I, the last thing that I kind of wanted to like preface that with was like, I've had some employers myself where they're like, they have a name for those people. They call them like job hoppers or something. So it's mm. like, cause like your, your perspective makes sense. But then the employer is like, damn job hoppers. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully I didn't ruin your response there. Uh, but carry on. Yeah. I want to, yeah, I know it's fine. Uh, yeah. I think like, like you said, it kind of, there's kind of this dynamic where, uh, the employer is incentivized to try and keep their employees, but I mean, it's, it's pretty cheap for them to find a replacement essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but as like a, as like an individual contributor or like even, even a manager in the technology space, it just makes way too much sense to continually be looking for jobs. Hmm. Um, like you're one, like you're going to learn new spaces when you switch from one place to another. And like, you're going to, you're going to improve your skills much faster than dealing with the same company's homegrown tooling and, and practices and stuff. Um, like you're gonna you're gonna be able to experience so many more different things, but also just generally when you switch jobs, you make more money, and mm-hmm. when you make more money, you tend to be happier. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to equate money to happiness, but it, yeah, in a lot of ways it kind of works out that way. Yeah, it makes whether sense. it's directly just from like quality of life or or uh, work experience or whatever. Mm. Um, and I think for me personally, I. I'm a, I'm a person that values stability a lot. Um, mm-hmm. and for me, like the, the thought of like switching jobs frequently kind of like terrifies me to be yeah. honest. Like, um, I like not having to think so much about what I'm going to do the next day and like doing, doing my work and like being generally happy about that. Um, and honestly, I kind of like got myself into a rut and like, if, if you, don't realize that the grass can be greener elsewhere. You, you might convince yourself that this is what, like, this is the one company that I'm going to stick with forever. And, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like be open to branching out and like investigating other spaces and like trying, trying out different things, I guess is, is my advice there. Yeah. I wish I would have had that advice earlier. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's, that's really cool insight. Um, I had a question. Is blockchain exciting to you or is it an eye roller? <laughs> Let me roll my eyes real quickly. <laughs> um, I think it's a really, really great way to consume a bunch of energy and accelerate <laughs> entropic collapse and uh, the climate t- catastrophe that's currently unfolding. And mm. I think that's the most productive thing that's coming out of it. Um, I think there's much easier ways to have uh, kind of cryptographic uh, fidelity around transactions and like um, it's like what it, what what blockchain is well I'm, I'm mostly talking about cryptocurrency here I think there's other applications for blockchain around like validating and having a have a having a chain of trust where you don't necessarily have to have like a farm of machines mining for these uh, these chains 
Mm. Uh, but I'm mostly talking about like cryptocurrency here, which <laughs> we're just going to piss off everyone now. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I think they're, I think what cryptocurrency essentially did was like, they were like, we want to build something that's not centralized banks. Uh, so we'll, we'll build decentralized banks. And then you have these uh, like trading, I forget what they're called, like the, the trading websites where you essentially like collect everyone together and that's uh, exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they've just reinvented banks, but with really poor legislations and no like safety nets and like all of these, all these problems that like, you look back 2000 years and we solved this with like government legislation and such um, and regulation and all the, all those other things. And I think like it's only a matter of time before cryptocurrency kind of ends up getting regulated. And like, then most of the the tangible benefits of being a not government controlled entity, like kind of fizzle away and, and you like the, the margins that you make on, uh, on transactions, will probably be less beneficial. And at that point, you've just like spent all this electricity for what? Yeah, the carbon footprint is no joke. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I guess like, uh, if you look back 20 years and you look at how much electricity was uh, pumped into like grow farms, for example, like I think I read a statistic at some point, this number is going to be completely wrong. Um, so someone, someone will have to fact check me. <laughs> fact check. But it was something like 8% of electricity of, of some country was spent into just growing marijuana in, hmm. in greenhouses and having uh, UV lights or whatever. Um, but like, I don't know, I think society will continue to uh, expend electricity as if it's infinite for quite a while until we start start realizing the the carbon impact of those sorts of things and like putting legislation in place to um, prevent this acceleration of, uh, of heat death, so to speak. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's uh, I didn't, I didn't know that we were going there, but thanks for bringing that up. Cause it's, I mean, it's definitely like a topic right now. And I don't know, like, I don't hear, like if you listen to like a crypto podcast, they're like raving about like, different things they're not talking about the <laughs> they're never talking about global warming yeah <laughs> yeah um, but actually well, funny thing is like my background uh before i got into well i've been in into computers for quite a while but my mm-hmm. my formal education actually started in biochemistry and so okay. I, I spent a lot of time like uh understanding a lot of these like ecosystem problems and like uh the chemistry behind them and, and really understanding from a scientific perspective exactly what we're up against and like how hard it's going to be to turn around this this uh, positive feedback loop of of uh, temperature rise. Hmm. Uh, I don't remember where I was going with this, but it's it's real, and and I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, it it's uh, we don't we don't have to go down this thread if you don't want to, but I am like genuinely curious. Like, is it like is the genie out of the bottle? Can like can it be put back in? Like. Are we just trying to make least worst decisions going forward? From or do most you have of the any projections hope? that I see, uh, some very major things will have to change for it to not be like a like meltdown scenario in 30 years or so. Hmm. And I don't, I don't know that the political climate right now is is the appropriate one to be fixing some of these things. Like 
we're starting to see rollback of some of this legislation like and it's it's real and we really we really need that legislation hmm. and honestly we we need to start making uh like leaps and bounds on uh like corporate contribution to to carbon footprint and like start burn start burning that down but not not actual burning in a figurative sense yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's man. That is intense. Uh, I should uh, probably disclose that I work uh, as a petroleum and natural gas engineer. Oh, okay. So, like, uh, so, so you're I, very close to the problem. I yeah, see. yeah. It's like it's definitely. Um, yeah, there's just there's just so much going on. I I try I try to be cognizant of it, but it, it's certainly like paying my my bills right now. But it's like, yeah, like what you just said is. Uh, like I'm going to be chewing on that for a while. So thanks. <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, so let's see here. <laughs> okay. So I had some, I had some other, so why do you find uh, uh, consistent disappointment in round trip parsing libraries, I guess? Oh man. So like <laughs> my Holy grail for any, like either configuration format or programming language or, other tool is that they have a good concrete syntax tree. A con, a con, uh, so you like abstract, abstract syn. <laughs> I was having trouble with it earlier. It's all right. Abstract syntax tree is basically a symbolic representation of the code, uh, but a concrete syntax tree builds on top of an abstract abstract syntax tree, an AST. And, there we go. And kind of gives you like. It's, it's basically the source overlaid on top of that symbolic representation. And hmm. like a good version of this would allow you to load a file from disk, make some changes to the, the abstract representation of that, and then write that code back to disk. And everything in the file should remain the same except for the, the semantic parts that you're changing. Um, and like having a quality one of those would allow automatic refactoring of all sorts of things. Hmm. I'll give you an example of one that, that should be super simple, but unfortunately is, is pretty hard to do. Um, and that's, that's everyone's favorite or least favorite um, white space-based language, YAML. Uh, you would think like a configuration format should be pretty easy to load, know all the offsets of every token in the file and be able to build a symbolic representation on top of that and like say, I want to add an item to a list in, in a YAML file and then like spit that back out to disk and have it still look the same as it was before. Hmm. Um, but it, it turns out like building these, these concrete, uh, these concrete um, representations is pretty hard. And on top of that, modifying those in an intelligent way is pretty hard. Um, hmm. <laughs> for YAML specifically, it has like a, <laughs> It's not a simple language. It should be simple language, but it's the spec is actually like 70 plus pages of like hmm. describing all the various wacky syntax things you can do with it. Hmm. Um, and because of all those nuances and like there's know, two different ways to format lists, you can quote things, you can leave things unquoted, you can use double quotes, you can escape characters, you can indent them two, four, eight, sixteen spaces. Uh, the indentation can switch in the middle of a file, like all of these sorts of things hmm. that um, as a human, like we obviously, like we can notice obviously like, oh, this is indented differently or like 
Uh, if I want to match the style, I'm going to keep everything in this particular uh, bracketed lists instead of dashed lists. Um, but having having a programmatic API to understand all those nuances and like be able to reproduce all of that stuff exactly is hard. Yeah. Um, but like some languages are really good about this. Like Go, for instance, um, uh, syntax rewriting is kind of a first class citizen for Go. And like it's somewhat encouraged to have um, code rewriting, for instance. And like Go format is a, is a first class citizen. And it, it knows how to take the, the syntax and make it to a very, very specific uh, uh, heuristics. And um, I don't know, like being able to have that power in every language would just make me a lot happier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in particular, particularly in Python, like there's, there's a lot of implementations of concrete, concrete, oh, man, I can't say that word for some reason, uh, concrete syntax trees in Python. Mm -hmm. um, but they all have like slightly different quirks. And most of what it boils down to is like they treat their interpretation of the syntax slightly differently than how the actual interpreter does. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's like bugs in the interpreter or uh, like ambiguity in the in the parser. I'm not saying Python is ambiguous, but uh, Ruby, for instance, there's there are ambiguities. Hmm. Although I think they've fixed most of them now. But um, but like having a concrete syntax tree that bug for bug repl uh, replicates the actual thing would be much more powerful than something that has false positives and false negatives around the syntax. Where mm -hmm. like the, the absolute worst is if you have a concrete syntax tree that allows you to build source that's invalid syntax. You'd go from something that works to something that's suddenly broken. Yeah, that um, sounds like a mess. Yeah, but until then I've been kind of like replicating this by using token sequences instead and then like building partial parsers over parts of token streams. Hmm. Uh, and that's mostly been working for me, but it's a lot of work to do that. Hmm. <laughs> like you essentially like, oh, there's a left bracket here. Oh, I'll search forward to see if the for keyword is there. Oh, now I know it's a list comprehension and not a list. I'm like hmm. having to build that manual parsing is both error prone and like pretty tedious. And if I could instead yeah. like have a symbolic representation, it's like, oh, I want to target all list comprehensions mm. and I want to find the, um, the if statements in them and rewrite them or combine them or do something like that. And, like that would be much more powerful than uh, guessing at a parsing or using a, or using a broken concrete syntax tree. Hmm. The other problem is Python evolves perhaps more rapidly than, than, uh, then a lot of these implementations can keep keep up with. So like, for instance, in Python 3.8, there's new syntax for positional only arguments and uh, assignment expressions. And both of those things, like uh, day one of Python 3.8 coming out, like most of the linters were broken, a good chunk of the code formatters were broken, and like everyone had to like adjust their implementations of these assumptions about the language that aren't super concrete, and, like hmm. may change over time. Um, so I think like what I would like my, my holy grail would be that the implementation of Python instead of being built on top of an abstract syntax tree would instead be built on top of a concrete syntax tree. That way like the interpreter would reuse 
exactly the same thing that a code formatter would reuse. Hmm. Would they? Oh, the compiler tool, oh, sorry, the compiler tool chain yeah. of Go like does some of this, and like I think that's really cool. And what you're talking about would that literally be like a fork of Python, or would they do that in like Python 3.9 or something? Uh, it's a lot of work to make it happen, and there's yeah. already one concrete syntax tree in the standard lib. Uh, so I guess at this point, poorly named, but lib two to three actually implements a CST for Python. Um, but again, like it has slightly different quirks than the actual AST. And so hmm. in some cases it's unusable and in other cases it does slightly different behaviors. And, um, and so that's like kind of a problem, but I, I think like, I think there's the potential to like build a proposal around like exposing a true concrete syntax tree from Python itself. But hmm. I think a lot of work would have to happen. Unfortunately. Yeah. Wow. You, the the Go thing that you brought up, I saw some joke about like, hey, it's like ten years old now. Now we can all apply for like the ten year, uh, <laughs> like the the jobs that require ten years of experience. What's <laughs> up with that crap? Because I know you're in a leadership role. Uh, like, what's what's up with that? Yeah, we're hiring uh, fifteen years of React experience. Uh, <laughs> man, that happens all the time. Uh, but yeah, we actually use a lot of Go at Lyft as well. And okay. um, I actually don't know when it started at Lyft because that predates me. But um, I I think that Go has done pretty well to to stick around for 10 years. And like it's it has some decent fundamentals and like enforces admittedly a pretty weird style of programming and like uh, feels very much like C, but has a lot more safety nets. And like, um, I think there's, there's good parts of Go and bad parts of Go, but like, I think that it's lasted for 10 years and is a growing community is a pretty good sign of its success. Hmm. Um, I do isn't think that Docker, what's that? Isn't Docker's like written in it? Yeah. Docker's written in Go. Um, and a lot of, a lot of other tools are written in Go. I think I can only really think of Docker though, now that you mm -hmm. mentioned it. Like that, um, that in itself might be enough to kind of make it like never, never go away. Yeah. Well, and Google, a lot of internal code at Google is written in Go. Okay. Kind of makes sense, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think like for Go to, to really excel and like get to the next level of popularity, it really needs to solve the like, generics problem that it has now um i i don't know i think that's like the maybe not the biggest thing but uh it's definitely holding me back from investing more in that in that tool chain in, in space that said i've written some go like uh <laughs> my uh i think i have one public i don't know i have like three or four public repositories around that are dealing with go mm -hmm. um I had this crazy idea that I wanted to write a linter for Docker files and um, then proceeded to boil the ocean. Uh, <laughs> what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> so in order to write a linter for Docker files, I need a Docker file parser. Okay. And there were like, I don't know, two or three in Python, like five or six in JavaScript. Like I, I had access to Docker file parsers, but the thing with all of them, and this kind of touches on the previous point is that, they were never bug for bug the same as the true Dockerfile parser. And hmm. so if I were to build a linter around one of them, I would be building a linter around, like I would already start with some level of bugs. Um, 
and like some amount of difference in behavior from the official parser. And so then I was like, okay, well, I'll just write a linter in Go, and then I can just import the official parser and then use that. And so I started writing a command line tool in Go, and then like my the first thing was like, oh, is there an arg parse like utility in Go? And this was before there were like lots of nice things in Go. And uh, there wasn't one, and I was like, well, like arg parse is so nice. I kind of I want exactly what it does, but <laughs> in this other programming language. And then I got the uh, the crazy idea that like, oh well, Go can compile to C extensions, and Python is well, canonical Python is C Python, so we can we can maybe build some bridge between Go C and C Python. Um, and so oh. I wrote this I wrote this library that allows you to easily build C Python extensions that are written in Go. Uh, okay. with, with the hope that I would be able to write a bridge from Python to Go to call the official Dockerfile parser and then use the response of that to write a linter. Hmm. Uh, then I built the library that does that. So I, I wrote a Dockerfile parser that you can pip install that runs the official Docker parser. Hmm. Um, but then I never wrote the linter. I got burned out on the project. <laughs> Wow. I, I built a cool thing, but yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, so the, so that's really a little sales pitch in case anybody wants to throw down on some open source. There's a project uh, ripe for. Yeah, yeah. And I, I already built the hard part. So it's, <laughs> you just need some set of heuristic rules to, uh, to implement some, some linters. Nice. Um, yeah. So I, I just have a couple of wind down questions here. Um, sounds good. Yeah. Uh, what is the most important book that you've read? Oh boy. <laughs> doesn't have to be technical. Um, ooh. Probably To Kill a Mockingbird. Alrighty. I think that was the first one that kind of, uh, I mean, I, I grew up in a very like not diverse background in in like i mean until high school like it was very 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 whitewashed and like um reading reading that kind of exposed me to like different fields of thought and like being able to start to comprehend those sorts of things that just like didn't didn't ever cross my day-to-day -day mind and uh i think that was yeah <laughs> Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. I get, I get all kinds of responses and I'm eternally curious. Like everybody's got awesome responses to these. Yeah. My down. problem with books is like, I, I don't, I tend not to have enough time. Well, I shouldn't say I don't have enough time to read. I don't prioritize reading in my free mm -hmm. time as much as I should. And uh, so like often like picking a particular book is difficult for me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Mm. Wind down questions. Oh man! <laughs> All right, this is this is the hard questions. Like yeah. I, I was, I was ready for the cushy ones. <laughs> best advice I've ever received. Mm -hmm. um, man, I've received some bad advice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think like the, the, okay, I, I have a good piece of advice. Um, 
if something is free, it's not actually free. Like if if you're if you're being given, being given something free, you're you're the product. Mm. Um, and like thinking about where where that applies, because it applies extremely well to software. Like yeah, generally if you're if you're building something for an employer and you're not getting paid for it, you're <laughs> you're not benefiting yourself. Basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I say that as I build a bunch of open source software. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm a self self fulfilling anti prophecy there. Huh? Yeah. That what you just said is like an in, incredible, good reminder of what's. I mean, the internet and what all its shenanigans. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And then some, what are some programming languages you think we should look towards in 2020? Uh, so I already mentioned Rust. I think Rust mm-hmm. would be really cool. Um, I'm excited for some of the stuff happening in the more recent releases of Python, but I don't know, you're on a Python podcast, so presumably uh, you're already invested in that. Yeah. Um, Although we try to, I, I try to get diversity around it because seriously, like, it's like so much python (laughs) yeah and like in in the noob arena like people just gravitate toward it and i don't know part of this podcast is actually like getting more of like a a bigger worldview so like your message has been well received Mm -hmm. um let's see i i'm I'm excited for rust i think nim is gonna be a big one coming up um i have one of my one of the people from my Twitch chat is constantly raving about it. And like the language seems really nice and has a, uh, a variety of different compile targets that seem to have it lend well to the ecosystem. Like you can build Python extensions with it. You can compile it to JavaScript, you can compile it to LLVM. Like hmm. you, have, you have all these sorts of choices. Uh, and the syntax is really nice. It reads a lot like Python, uh, but it's statically typed and like, you know, kind of, kind of like all the the nice things that I wish I had in a programming language that I could spend time in. Nice. But yeah, I think those are the languages that I would, I'm um, I'm looking forward to in 2020. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And where, uh, where do we send people up? Where, uh, so they can get to know you better. Uh, probably. Oh man, I hate to say this, but probably the best is Twitter. Okay. Uh, my my Twitter handle is uh, twitter.com/slash code with Anthony. Um, I would, I had this grand vision that all of my like social uh, programming stuff were all going to be the same branding. So like my YouTube is Anthony writes code. My Twitch is Anthony writes code. Uh, but then I, I registered both of those first and then mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, I guess I need a Twitter account. And I went to register it and it was like, Anthony writes cod. <laughs> Damn it. Too code short. with a three at the end. Oh, it's too, it's too long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was like, well, I could pivot to fishing and we could just <laughs> talk about cod all day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I went with a shorter alternative. But. Fair enough. Yeah, we'll make sure they got links to those. And then do you have like a call to action? Uh, Check out your Twitch stream. Yeah. You got so <laughs> a lot going on over there. I mean, yeah, I try and program, uh, I try and build something once a week on Saturdays, uh, usually 11 p.m. or 11 p.m., 11 a.m. Pacific. Okay. Um, usually it's whatever I'm working on at the time. Uh, so like recently I spent some time looking at GitHub Actions, for instance, and 
sometimes I'll work on linters or sometimes I'll just like work on my text editor that I'm building. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. Uh, we hang out with people ask questions in the chat. I try and answer them. I explain a bunch of stuff that, uh, goes off on wild tangents and <clears throat> sometimes I'll be explaining like weird quirks about uh, closures in Python, for instance. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fun little community and, um, it's like 2000 strong, isn't it? Yeah, I've liked, well, so the funny story about that. So I actually only have around 1,300 followers. Uh, okay. There was a Russian bot farm a couple of weeks ago <laughs> that uh, completely destroyed my notifications and like like a thousand accounts followed within like a 15 second period. What the and heck? And they just spammed the chat in Russian. Uh, we translated it now. It's like a meme in my like, <laughs> chat, but the, the message they were spamming was we... Is it we will protect the homeland or we must protect the homeland? Something what like that. What the heck? But it was it was just like <laughs> out of nowhere. Um, but yeah, it was pretty funny. But yeah, it's it's somewhere around like thirteen hundred followers. Okay, mine. Yeah, plus or minus some Russian bots. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yep. that's pretty funny, man. Well, uh, man, this has been such a blast. Thanks for carving out some time to do the show and dropping all these knowledge bombs and inspiring us to kind of open our eyes with what's going out there uh, with the real world of software development. So real world. <laughs> yeah. no, it was, this was really cool. I enjoyed it. So um, I'm going to, I guess, wind up, wind down the podcast right now. And then if you want to stick around for like a minute or something, we can uh, just kind of catch up. Yeah, um, sounds great. Alrighty. Thanks so, yeah. Thanks Anthony so much. And we'll make sure they know where to get you on the links. Sounds All right. Good. Peace guys.